Welcome to Small Business Insights, where back office conversations give us insight to what's really going on. Is it grit or luck that gives a small business owner an advantage? Let's find out. I'm your host, Laura Fisher. Well, welcome today. I have a special guest. His name is David Fisher, and he's my husband. We've been married how long, Dave? Forever. Um, uh, 24, 25 years. No, not quite 25. We lose count. That's what happens when you get old. Um, we have four kids together. And first of all, I want my uh, listeners to know who my husband is and why you're in the business of aviation. So Dave, how'd you get started in aviation? Well, at 17, I joined the Air Force right out of high school and ended up getting uh, trained as a crew chief in Denver, Colorado at Lowry Air Force Base, and then uh, transferred out to England at RAF Bentwaters, where I was a crew chief initially on uh, A-10 fighter jets. So you were an enlisted or an officer? Enlisted. So what, did you retire from the Air Force? What happened? No, I got out after a six-year enlistment and ended up going to work for GE Capital uh, in their turbine uh, aircraft division. But while I was in the Air Force, I was fortunate enough to be assigned the A-10 fighter aircraft for the uh, base commander. And as uh, such, I ended up also becoming the crew chief eventually on his King Air 350, you know, military equivalent. And then as he got promoted to become a brigadier general, he uh, received a brand new Gulfstream G3, and I ended up being the crew chief on that as well. And so I learned the military aircraft, but more the civilian side of the aircraft as well. Okay, so you left the Air Force. You didn't stay in the aviation. You, uh, I know you because you went into the car business. You went into sales. You had a lot of different career paths. Tell me how you got back into aviation. Back in January of 2000, my brother and I had been talking for a year about starting an aircraft company ourselves. He worked in the business as a aircraft broker. He, he started off with uh, Raytheon Aircraft, which does the King Airs and the Premiers. And he ended up working for a company that was a superstar used aircraft broker uh, by the name of uh, Bell Aviation in Columbia, South Carolina. And I was in Houston. And so we ended up agreeing that whoever got to choose their field of industry would move. The, the other person would move. So if we went into sales, he'd move to Houston. And if we went into maintenance, which was what I knew, I would move to Columbia, South Carolina. Well, he wanted to stay in sales. And so we opened up shop at Sugarland Airport, uh, which is KSGR in Sugarland, Texas. And we started what was Fisher Global Aviation January 1st of 2000. I remember that. And it's just down the road because we're recording this at the Imperial Podcast Studio in Sugarland, Texas. And that airport has changed over the last 20 some years because now we're recording this in 2022. You're not a pilot. No. So you've always been a ground guy. Right. So how'd it go when you opened? <laughs> well, it didn't go as planned. First of all, for the first four months, uh, we did phenomenal. I didn't really know anything about selling aircraft. I knew the maintenance side of it, which is still useful. And we ended up getting nine aircraft listings in the first four months, which is amazing. Right. Okay. Uh, 
and and uh, he always wanted to own his own aircraft, and so we agreed to go 50-50 on what ended up being a beach V-tail bonanza. And he went to Florida to pick it up. So this is just four months later. Four months later. And he's moved to Houston. He's moved to Houston. His whole family's moved to Houston. Uh, they bought a house, and there they were. And he wants to buy this aircraft with the promise he's going to teach me how to fly in it. Which, by the way, I had no desire to learn how to fly. And so he's flying the aircraft back from Florida where he purchased it and ended up stopping overnight. He had some mechanical issue and stopping over in Shreveport, Louisiana. And then early the next morning, there had been a big storm that had uh, passed Houston headed towards Louisiana. Uh, although he promised not to have get homeitis, what's that? Uh, that's where you, uh, in spite of the risks, you get home. Okay, uh, you just take off. Is that a, just for a pilot converse? Is that a pilot thing? Absolutely. You 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 don't want to have get homeitis because you you want to be afraid of you know what could happen if you don't take precautions. And he ended up getting caught in a storm. And the next thing I know, I'm in my office and I get a call from uh, the uh, Air Force asking if he had landed the air force the air force because he had filed a uh a flight plan uh he was a uh he was a uh ifr rated pilot which means he could fly instrument rated. so they were calling to say did he land and we didn't know about it correct because he fell off the radar okay so literally literally never did we find him again uh, we never found the airplane. We never found him. We knew the last time he was spotted, he was 20 miles off the coast of Louisiana in the Gulf of Mexico, and they uh, never found him. And, and and I got that call actually the Monday after uh, April Fool's Day in 2000. Right. And uh, you could still go onto the NTSB uh, reports and for for that whatever that Monday is and pull up that data and uh, basically they'll list it as a fatal accident and they never found anything. Wow! So here you are starting in a new industry. Mm-hmm. Your mentor died. Right. Well, we don't even know where he is. Right. So. Did you just close up shop? I wanted to. I had every intentions of doing it. I, I, I just needed to catch my breath and kind of think think things through a little bit. And we each had key man insurance. And the purpose of the key man was uh, we had raised half a million dollars and we were going to pay back our investors the half a million dollars in case, you know, one of us died and we were going to basically go do what we wanted to do and the investors would be made whole. So that was the plan. That ended up being a good business decision. Yeah, well, yeah. I'll, I'll, I think I, I think insurance is always a good business decision. So uh, what happened next? Why didn't you close up? So I was going to. I really was. But I started getting calls from our customers, those nine listings, and they all said the same thing. Really sorry to hear about your brother, but we want to sell our airplane. We, we found out that you really don't have any sales experience for aircraft, and so we're going to take our listing to another broker. Ooh. And I had well, the that happened like a month later after your brother no, died. It happened like while they were still searching for him. Oh wow! And and the only people that I notified was uh, Bell Aviation because I knew he had a lot of friends there mm-hmm. and stuff, and I thought they should know. And I was a little put off because I mean, literally heard from just about all nine of them, and uh, that you know they hadn't even declared him dead. They hadn't found him. They were still searching, yet. Right. 
this guy's trying to poach these listings. Uh, what a scavenger. And so is this the first time you've had this experience in this industry or did it keep going on? I mean, do people poach? I mean, it's is it that cutthroat of an industry? It is, but there's there's generally, they'll, they'll approach you kind of like in the real estate business towards the end of a listing when it's expiring. If it hasn't sold, they'll say, hey, would you consider us? It, it happens in the real estate business, uh, be it commercial or residential, and it happens in the aircraft business. I'm sure it happens in other industries. Uh, and, and, and people can access this data through certain databases. Well, anyway, uh, and so, yeah, it does happen, okay? Uh, but never in this situation that I've ever heard of in, in the 22 years I've been in the industry. Well, I basically told each one of these customers that I would get back to them. I slept on it. The next day I called them back and I said, you do not have an agreement with Steve Fisher. You have an agreement with Fisher Global Aviation and we're going to sell your airplane. Now, at this point, there was no we. It was me and I had no earthly idea how I was going to do it. I'd never sold an aircraft before. I didn't even know what contracts. I knew nothing. And it's really complicated because there's title searches. Very I mean, complicated. It's escrow, maintenance, inspections, financing, personalities, all kinds of things, right? Crazy stuff. I sold eight of those nine aircraft within the six-month contract period that we had. We had 180 days. How did you do that without knowing what to do? You had to have some resources. You know, I, I couldn't call my competitors because they were competitors, right? They weren't really going to help me. Even Bell Aviation, you know, I mean, this was their sweet spot, these uh, right. King, King Airs and Citations. And so, you know, they wanted the listings too. That's how they, that's how they fed their families. So the only one, and, and I did know how to sell because I, I had worked in the car business. And, and uh, telecom, and you're just a natural salesman. Right. And in addition to that, I knew the maintenance of it. So the inspection piece of it was was uh, good for me. I, I knew that part. And, and, and I still use that part. But I didn't know how to actually do the transaction. So I contacted Brenda Cobb with Insured Aircraft Title Service and basically said, can you walk me through doing this? When I had somebody interested in buying right. and she walked me through it, what kind of paperwork, what kind of forms and, and things like that. And so she got me through my first one. So she helped me through my second one. And eventually I had gotten eight of the nine sold. And, you know, at our heyday prior to 9-11, we had like 60 aircraft listings. You know, at that point I had grown the company to about uh, six or seven uh, sales reps, including myself. Wow. That's quite a start. Where are you now? Because you have gone from not knowing anything about the aircraft, you knew some about the maintenance, but now you are considered an expert in the aviation industry. How does that happen? Luck, grit, what did you have to do to do that? And, and what makes you an expert? First of all, I needed to educate myself, okay? And I thought that the very best way for me to educate myself was to learn how to be an appraiser. Okay. okay. And I felt that an appraiser basically knows every aspect of the valuation, the market, uh, uh, the competition, uh, comparable sales, everything. You had to train yourself. So you had to pay for it yourself because you weren't working for anybody, right? Right. Was it worth it? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, be, uh, especially what, what I couldn't see at the time was how much the industry would change and affect brokers at, at the time through, you know, just events that happened in the world. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, I learned a lot about aircraft and their valuation and also helicopters. They had special courses on helicopters taught by helicopter people, and I knew nothing about helicopters. I just knew that they were a different animal than a fixed-wing aircraft, and I wanted to understand the differences and I didn't understand the differences and so by taking these appraiser courses that were only available you know as a as an appraiser I went ahead and learned and grew in my knowledge and be, began transacting on helicopters and so uh, that's how I educated myself which uh, from what I remember that gave you a niche because a lot of people didn't know helicopters well, you do. A, a lot of them didn't, and a lot of them don't know the difference between, uh, uh, you know, they may do helicopters and not a uh, fixed wing, and they may do, you know, vice versa. Uh, the other thing is the cost. And, what, and when you say fixed wing, are you talking about just a standard airplane? Uh, an airplane that goes straight. Okay. okay. Uh, so, so, <laughs> well, just just checking. <laughs> hopefully. So so uh, so there's fixed wing and there's rotor wing, and okay. and they all fall under the the uh, word airplane. You're not the little single engine guy. You're a corporate jet guy. Right. I tried the single engine guy uh, thing a couple of times, and oh my god, it was so so difficult. You know, I dealt with these uh, uh, turbine aircraft where you're dealing with. Uh, small to mid-sized businesses, even larger companies, and they don't have to, you know, check with their wife and this and that. But 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 when you're dealing with a a small aircraft that the price of it is a hundred, hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand dollars, like an expensive car, the client wants to check with his wife, and she doesn't like the color. And well, this what's and the that. difference for a corporate jet? What are we talking prices for that? Corporate jets are, are are difficult to price. It depends on the year, but you know, generally, my sweet spot is anywhere between two million to uh, twenty million. That's my sweet spot. So, do you own a plane? I do not. Why not? Because uh, number one, I'm. I'm not infatuated with corporate air travel, okay? Uh, I, I don't travel enough. I mean, maybe if I fit the criteria of most of my customers. Say I'm a real estate developer and I've got real estate all over the country and I want to go look at four or five different job sites, you know, in a day and get home for dinner. Okay, I would definitely own an aircraft, okay? But in in my case, I, I, I travel up, I you know, I look at an airplane, maybe I spend the night and I'm home the next day. Right. It works for me. But I guarantee you, if I was a company that needed to transport, you know, several people uh, or, or I had uh, uh, real estate developments all over, it would be mandatory to have a corporate aircraft. Right. I know here in Houston, we have a lot of oil companies. They have it. Entertainers have them. Who else has corporate aircraft? Who do you get to deal with all the time? I'd say my biggest segment of clients is real estate developers, which I'm literally, that's a huge number of, of people. Even an oil and gas company is technically a real estate developer. People that build shopping centers, uh, people that build subdivisions. These people need to have this. And most of, of these are not where there's a major airport nearby. So wouldn't it be nice to just travel to, here we are in Sugarland, and there's an airport literally a mile away. It takes you two minutes to get out here, okay? And from there, and the airplane's waiting for you. You don't have to worry about the fact that your flight's been delayed because it snowed in Chicago. The price is a whole lot 
different. I mean, my Southwest airline will cost 200 to $300 one way. Like I'm going to Portland. Right. So my round trip is $600. So if I chartered or had my own airplane, we're not talking the same amount of money. Maybe 30 grand. But, oh, but, wow. But here's the thing, though. Let's talk about that. Number one, it's on your schedule. Okay. You may be bringing multiple people with you. Okay. You're landing at an airport near where you want to be. And you may be able to make multiple stops on the same trip. Now you divide that by how much revenue potential you're able to generate. And the question is, is, is that aircraft now a, a, a cost or is it a revenue generator? And, and that's what you have to think about when you're looking at the cost of a corporate aircraft. Do some people buy it just for quality of life? Yeah, you know. Like, like uh, you said, home for dinner. Oh, oh, th- th- that's true, but it's not just that. It's for a business uh, times, you want to recruit a, uh, a top-notch uh, talent for your company, and it, part of his job or her job is going to be extensive travel, okay, but you tell them that we have a corporate aircraft and you're able to do this and you have this flexibility, and that's a perk that may bring in the talent as opposed to the competition trying to hire the same quality of talent, but they're going to stick them on, uh, you know, Southwest or United. Mm-hmm. Even if it's first class. I mean, the fact is, it's a different quality. So so that's, uh, it's just a, a different need and you have to monetize it. All right. So when we return from our sponsor break, I want you, if you could tell me, some advice you'd have for somebody starting a new business. This segment is sponsored by Business eSuites, the perfect workspace for small businesses and startups, offering virtual mail, virtual office, meeting rooms, co-working, shared and private offices, even office warehouse space, perfect for e-commerce. Visit businessesuites.com today. They help businesses take off. Okay, Dave, what kind of advice would you have for somebody starting a new business? Well, number one, if you're going to start a new business, we have to look at whether it's going to be kind of a side gig or whether it's going to be your core revenue generating business. No matter what you do, you need to run the numbers. You have to do a pro forma, okay? And so you have to basically look at who are your customers and you have to look at what's your product or service and what that product or service is going to bill at. And then you need to also determine what your reasonable sales expectations starting off and everything else. Pro forma is a, you're just kind of putting it on paper, how the numbers are going to work. And what else is a pro forma? Is it just numbers? Yeah, it's just numbers. A pro forma is just what it sounds. How do you anticipate performing? Well, how do you know when to go from side gig to full-time? Well, you, you have to pay yourself, okay, no, number one. You have to pay yourself. And a lot of entrepreneurs don't do that, do they, at the beginning? Or, or, or they pay themselves under the table, and they don't really have any, you know, visible revenue, and so they can't really get any loans to expand their business. And, you know, so, so you got to run the business legitimately. you got to pay yourself. you got to show the revenue, okay? And you got to pay taxes on the revenue because if you ever want to grow your business and, and you're not showing that you're paying yourself, you know, lenders just won't take it seriously. Okay. And it's not just them. They could a hundred percent believe in you. Okay. But you know, when you're dealing with other people's money 
uh, banks' money, uh, which is insured by the federal government, and you know, uh, investors or whatever, uh, they want to know that the business is a legitimate business. It takes time, but you'll never get there working for somebody else. No matter what you do, do it legitimately. Make sure that you file the proper documentation, that you research on, on the internet how to create a, an LLC, you know, an S corp, how to create a corporation, how to create a DBA, uh, how to file. And it's very inexpensive to do it, how to, uh, uh, create it. So it's legal. And so legally you're shielded from a lawsuit. It's very important that they can't get to you personally. Also, you want to make sure that you account for your revenue, that your business is paying taxes and that you are personally paying income taxes. If you don't, do not expect your business to be able to go to the next level. Let's just say you get a job as a home builder or, or, or a car dealer. Okay. And you need to bring in some inventory. You need to, uh, you need get supplies a big, or whatever. exactly. Or and, and so you want to take out a loan because you just signed a contract and they want to pay you $50,000 to do this huge remodel. And you're going to need $25,000 worth of uh, material. Okay. So, so if, if that's the case, you need to uh, go to a bank and say, I've got this signed contract. Here's what I need. And they're going to look at you and say, is your business even generating a revenue? And if you haven't claimed it. Done QuickBooks and kept all your books. You and- can't give your banker a wink and a smile and say, you know, I have, but it's been under the table. Under the table doesn't fly. Now, most contractors, as an example, just uh, require their customer to fund them. They say, I want 50% up front. Okay. But if you're dealing with a more respectable, higher end, they're going to say, no, nah, if you can't fund the job yourself, I'm not going to fund it for you. And that's the level you want to get at. So this is a lot more than aviation. So um, what other kind of businesses are you in? I own uh, some commercial real estate. I started offering residential real estate uh, to, to uh, basically provide myself another stream of revenue income, especially during the downturn. Because you were uh, a commission-only salesperson. Correct. And nobody was buying or selling aircraft during 2008, 2009. You know, I don't think I even said what your aviation business name is today. It's Western Aviation. Right. I named it Western Aviation, which you can go to the website, westernaviation.com, because up to, well, actually more than a year after my brother passed away, and nobody really knew me in the sales world, but the sales world with regards to other brokers and dealers is small. And they all knew Steve Fisher. And for literally a year later, people were still calling me and spending, uh, I would get sometimes two or three calls a week or more, uh, wanting to spend an hour on the phone, all talking about, hey, I knew your brother, I did this with him. And, that. And, and, and literally, I had things to do, but I didn't want to be rude and go, listen, love to hear your stories, uh, don't have time to talk to you. I didn't want to do that. So what I did was I changed the name of the company to uh, Western Aviation. And as a result of that, people, they didn't know uh, that I was affiliated with Steve Fisher. And so I quit getting those calls. Yeah. So today, um, you've been in the business 22 years, right? Uh, in addition to your Air Force experience. And I know you do, you can be an expert witness for mm-hmm. uh, lawsuits, right? You are an ASA certified appraiser, and there aren't that many with your level of expertise. And um, you're an entrepreneur, you own several businesses, and you have three dogs. Uh, what else do we need to know about Dave Fisher? So I have uh, four children, a beautiful wife. I don't really drink. 
that much unless it's a nice gin and tonic and I am uh, learning to travel a bit more. And if they want to reach you for aviation, it's david at westernaviation.com. And don't you have a really cool phone number? I do. It's 1-800-AVIATION, which is 284-2846. That's awesome. I really would like to have you back um, to let us know about how things are going for you in 2022 and if it was the year you expected it to be. Thank you so much for stopping by today. Thank you. All righty. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us this week on Small Business Insights. Make sure you visit our website at fisherpodcast.com where you can follow the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform so you'll never miss a show. If you enjoyed and found value in today's episode, we'd appreciate a rating and review on iTunes or simply share it with a friend. That would help us out too. Make sure you tune in next week for our next episode. Until then, you better be up to something.